Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse, among the corn-soaked fields of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, recorded on location at George Washington's Mount Vernon, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Welcome everyone to episode four of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. As Drew mentioned, I am broadcasting my part of the podcast this week from the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. I'm here doing some research on my next book project, and perhaps somewhere down the road, uh, I'll be ready to talk more about that project. But before we get started here, Drew, I want to once again thank everyone for their support. We are four episodes into this podcasting experience, and we already have a growing and loyal group of subscribers. If you are looking for something to listen to in the car on the way to work, or when you are taking that daily walk on the treadmill, head over to iTunes or thewayofimprovement.com and download past episodes, subscribe, or write a review. If you love good history programming, Help us build our audience by doing those things. So, Drew, if your Facebook page is correct, it looks like you spent some time last weekend at a historical landmark, a relatively new historical landmark, I might add, in New England. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that's correct. Uh, well, first, as many listeners know, I'm teaching Native American cultures this semester in Salem's Peabody Essex Museum currently houses a special exhibit on contemporary Native American fashion design. One of the themes of my class is the debunking of Indian stereotypes, including the timeless Indian, wherein Native Americans are not seen as authentic unless they culturally remain in a state that predates contact with Europeans. So seeing this exhibit with a lot of wonderful examples of fashion-forward designs that are distinctly Indian, both in origin and aesthetic, was a great way to experience the debunking of the stereotype. Now I just have to find a way to share that experience with my students. However, while I was in Salem, I also made sure to stop and visit the recently verified location of the gallows built during the Salem Witch Trials in 1692. It was a bit of an unreal experience. The site does not yet bear a historical marker and is found in the parking lot of a Walgreens, which is a bit jarring considering the unjust yet historically significant events that took place there. 
So I stood in the parking lot, and I took a selfie with what I thought was an appropriately stern demeanor, which you then posted on your blog. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I've been reading about this site, too. It's really interesting. Just a quick shout-out here uh, to a friend of mine, historian Emerson ba uh, Baker, who teaches at Salem State University. I know he has been involved in uh, providing some of the scholarly leadership to the group of local historians that have been trying to identify this site, which is a rather tragic site, right, in the history of America. Um, if you're interested in Baker, he wrote a great book called A Storm of Witchcraft, and we interviewed him at our Author's Corner series, I guess it was last year sometime. So head over to the blog and search for that interview. I'm not the only one spending some time at legendary historical sites, so tell me a little bit more about your time in Mount Vernon. Yeah, that's right. I'm fortunate enough to have won a fellowship. I'm a visiting scholar uh, here at the relatively new research library at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Uh, I have only been here about a week, but so far it's been just an amazing experience, totally first class all the way. Uh, the director, he's known around here as the founding director, uh, Doug Bradburn, his uh, early American historian who spent several years teaching uh, at SUNY Binghamton, has a very knowledgeable and extremely hospitable staff. I'm also working alongside a great group of fellow fellows, uh, and the residential accommodations here are outstanding as well here in the uh, Richard and Helen DeVos residency uh, right on the campus of Mount Vernon uh, or on the property here. So let me give a let me give a pitch. If you're a scholar working on George Washington or the American Revolution, uh, or if you have some project related to the revolution, I would definitely encourage you to not only pay a visit here to the library, but also to apply for a fellowship here. So Drew, uh, in light of that, some of you who have been following me on Facebook or Twitter know that I actually, I think it was on Monday, I crossed an item off of my bucket list. And that being was, I was at Mount Vernon on George Washington's birthday, which was February 22nd. So uh, that was really cool. Um, it was an incredibly busy day here at the estate and in the library. They actually had a naturalization ceremony uh, in the morning, which I learned about too late. I've never been to a naturalization ceremony, and I would have loved to have gone. Uh, there's a lot of energy here at the library. Uh, for example, the other day, the staff was trying to figure out, I think they're still doing this, trying to figure out how the radio commentator, Glenn Beck, managed to get what he claims to be George Washington's copy of the novel Don Quixote when everybody here at Mount Vernon says that the copy they have in their library is actually the one that belonged to Washington. So if you've been following this on uh, social media or on the web, uh, this has created a little bit of a stir. Um, my hunch is that my new friends here at Mount Vernon are probably right on this one, but we'll see how it unfolds. The other thing amazing about Mount Vernon is its commitment to education. Uh, if you are a teacher, go to the Mount Vernon website and try to find some, uh, look at some of the opportunities available to you. Dozens of teachers come to the library every summer uh, for K through 12 teacher seminars that are geared towards George Washington uh, and the Revolutionary Era. So it really is quite a place. Uh, the library is just amazing and uh, soon I think the library will be the go-to place uh, for those who want to study George Washington uh, and the American Revolution. 
Absolutely. And I might add, I think this is a nice segue into our episode for today. Teaching history at the K-12 level. Our guest is Stanford history educator Sam Weinberg. I know he's one of your favorite historians, John. Yeah, I'm, we say we're excited about every episode, right, and every guest. But, uh, you know, I am so thrilled to have Sam Weinberg with us on the podcast uh, this week. I don't know of any scholar who has shaped my understanding of how to do history and think about history uh, than Sam Weinberg. Uh, His book, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts, was really a transformative read for me. Uh, And in fact, if you read my own book, Why Study History, Reflecting on the Importance of the Past, uh, you can't help but see Weinberg's influence on nearly every page. Yeah, absolutely. And as a former middle school history teacher, I too am very eager to hear what Weinberg has to say on teaching historical thinking. But before we do that, what do you have for us today, John? Thanks, Drew. For the past 15 years, I have been teaching a class at Messiah College called Teaching History and Social Studies. What began as a course that I was asked to teach because no one else was interested has quickly become one of my favorite assignments as a college history professor. In addition to thinking about the most effective approaches to lesson planning, unit planning, and assessment, We also spend a lot of time on the history of history teaching in the United States, the best way to teach primary documents, and how to effectively teach middle and high school students to think like historians. I usually begin the course with Gary Nash's book, History on Trial, Culture Wars and the Teachings of the Past. In this book, Nash, who many of you know as a distinguished historian of the American Revolution with dozens of books to his credit, offers an insider perspective or account on the 1990s debates over the so-called national history standards. On one level, the book is a bit dated. History educators and reformers have moved well beyond the national history standard debates. In fact, My students were probably not even alive. I know they weren't alive when these debates over national standards were being waged. But Nash's book is still valuable for at least two reasons, and this is why I continue to assign it. First, it shows my students, future teachers, that debates over the proper teaching of the past in schools has a long history in America. And second, I am convinced that understanding past discussions over what school children should learn about history prepare my college students, my teachers in training, well for similar debates that they will inevitably face when they get to their own classrooms. The role of history in public schools has been, is, and always will be politicized because history is more than just the memorization of names and dates. This is why debates over the content of school textbooks in Texas, or the essay and multiple choice questions on the AP exam, or the role of history in the Common Core, or the resistance to the Obama administration's decision to throw money behind STEM at the cost of history are so controversial. So why should students in public schools study history? It is an age-old question one that I'm guessing every American at one point or another has asked themselves. There have been multiple ways of answering this question, at least as I see it. 
First, some take what might be called a cultural literacy approach. In other words, students should know certain facts about the past. During the debates over the National History Standards, for example, in the 1990s, radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh insisted that history is, quote-unquote, what happened. Anything beyond that, he suggested, should not be taught in a history classroom. Every year we learn just how historically ignorant kids are today. They can't name the first president of the United States. They don't know who won the Civil War. Those who put out these surveys of students and their historical knowledge wonder what is happening to our country. What's wrong with our students today? Most of them don't realize, as our guest Sam Weinberg notes in the opening pages of his book, Historical Thinking and Other, Other Unnatural Acts, that students have been failing these historical knowledge tests for a long, long time. This is not anything new. Another approach to history teaching in schools, and one related to the history as facts approach, is what I call the history as civics approach. The idea that the study of American history is essential to make us better citizens has been around since the birth of our republic. Whether it be facts or ideas, history teaches us who we are and enables us to be more effective participants in the democratic life of our nation. Of course students must learn it. This approach to history still has a powerful hold on the way state boards of education frame their standards and the way that teachers approach their callings to the classroom. A third way of thinking about history education is an approach that focuses on historical thinking skills. Those who support this view are less concerned about their students knowing or remembering who won the War of 1812, and more concerned about how to think critically, read contextually, understand change over time, become more empathetic people, and develop the virtues needed to live together with their neighbors. In the end, those who embrace the first two approaches to teaching, what I've called the history as facts, and the history of civics approaches will be overly concerned with the kind of historical actors, movements, and events that our students will be exposed to in the classroom. Those on the right will defend the so-called traditional canon. They believe that students should learn about the founding fathers, the defenders of conservative values, and the historical actors that have made the United States an exceptional nation. Those on the left will want underrepresented voices, the poor, women, African Americans, Native Americans, to find their way into textbooks and lesson plans. Those who believe that history pedagogy is all about the teaching of historical thinking skills will say that such skills can be taught regardless of the historical content. Those in this camp would certainly want a balanced curriculum that represents the diversity of the American experience. But what they really want is their students to know how to read a primary source, make sense of seemingly contradictory descriptions of the same historical event, and to understand historical voices on their terms, not ours. Frankly, it seems like our so-called history wars can be brought to an end by educating teachers that all three of these approaches are essential to good historical pedagogy. We need to know the facts. They are the building blocks of good history. But we can't stop there. 
those facts need to be interpreted and connected to the American experience and our place within it. In other words, I'm not willing to abandon the idea that the study of history has a civic purpose. But I do think that the historical thinking skills approach, especially at the K-12 through level, should always be paramount, our ultimate end. So let's stop these artificial debates about how history should be taught. Instead, let's put our focus on the history classroom as a place where students learn what happened, they learn why what happened is important to our collective life together, and they learn how the exploration of why what happened in the way that it did can prepare us for life. Thanks for those words, John. You know, both through my experience as a middle school teacher and then actually as an author, I wrote an article on social studies and aligning the social studies curriculum with the common core. Uh, I really resonate with a lot of the things you said. I had the opportunity to talk with the president of the National Council of Social Studies, Steve Armstrong, and he was really pushing the history as civics approach. So I think a lot of what you're saying is really relevant to how students are being educated in classrooms right now. Yeah, I think that history of, civ- uh, that history of civics approach is really uh, has a long history of being connected with the social studies and this whole idea of relevance. So it wouldn't, be surpri- it wouldn't surprise me that uh, the president of uh, the National Council for Social Studies would make that argument. Yeah, and I really do think it, it, it has legs in, insofar as history as civics became really important during the Cold War and the ways in which we felt the need to educate our students about why America was such a great country and why it was worth investing so many resources and so much anxiety into opposing the Soviet Union and the the threat of communism. Right. I think also you could trace it all the way back to the progressive era when all when social studies as a as a sort of discipline was really born. You know, the idea that, you know, uh, the study of history and other disciplines should have some kind of a social purpose in bringing progress to uh, our nation. But yeah, this is fascinating stuff. Well, and I'm sure our guest today, Sam Weinberg, will have much to add, so let's get him in on the conversation. Sam Weinberg is the Margaret Jacks Professor of Education at Stanford University, where he also directs the Stanford History Education Group. Weinberg has written widely on the teaching and learning of history, historical consciousness, and the importance of history pedagogy in the school curriculum. He is the author of several books, including Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts, Charting the Future of the Teaching of the Past, and Reading Like a Historian, Teaching Literacy in Middle and High School Classrooms. It is a pleasure to have Sam Weinberg with us on the podcast. Sam, as you know, I'm a big fan of your work. We're thrilled to be able to take a few minutes and talk with you here today about uh, teaching history. Thank you very much. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. Sam, you direct an organization or an institute or a group called the Stanford History Education Group. Tell us a little bit about what that's all about uh, uh, at Stanford University where you work. The Stanford History Education Group is uh, uh, an alliance of a group of professors, uh, graduate students, postdocs, undergraduates, uh, visiting researchers, who come together to try to think about uh, 
creating and doing research uh, on historical understanding, creating high-quality materials, and leaving them by the digital curb. We fortunately have uh, uh, several foundations that believe that um, making knowledge free is something that advances democracy. And so over the past four years, we've been able to upload close to, I think we're up to about 140 different lesson plans on the wow. teaching of U.S. and world history um, that we make available to anybody who is willing to just register on the website and download our materials to date, we have three over three million downloads in all fifty states, and every single country in the world except North Korea and Palau. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, so what? What is? How do we? How if you're a teacher out there, or someone's listening, how do we access that that database? Just go into Google and type in Stanford History Education Group, and our website will immediately come up, and you will join a community of teachers who support us and give us feedback and help us think about the next directions our work should take. Well, if you're a teacher out there listening to this, uh, head over there, Stanford History Education Group. It sounds like a, a great resource uh, for teachers. Yeah, well, I myself used to be a middle school social studies teacher, so uh, I'm a little bit curious as to why you think middle school and high school students need to think like historians. Well, what's the alternative to thinking like historians? Thinking like totalitarians, thinking <laughs> thinking like fascists. Uh, historical thinking is training for the mind, training to deal with the cacophonous voices of a democracy, training to think through a reasoned position that is supported by evidence. The alternative is uninformed opinion, um, some of which we're, we're experiencing right now with the kind of leading claim, the claims of the leading contender for the Republican nomination, who makes claims that can't be supported at all. And yet people are credulous and believe in them. And I think that's a testament to, uh, in many ways, to the failure of, ed of our educational system. Sam, you mentioned, um, you know, that this teaches you to... Uh, you know, look at evidence and evaluate evidence and so forth. What do you say to the person who is from another discipline other than, than history and perhaps a discipline that thinks differently than historians think that may also use evidence or believe that their discipline is contributing uh, as well to the democratic culture in which we live? Listen, uh, John. The, the social and the social and political world in which we dwell is a is a is a world of shades of gray where we do not have the kind of certainty that you can find in a discipline like mathematics, clearly where evidence and proof are constructs that are used in, in the discourse of that discipline. We deal in probabilities. We deal in shades of gray. We deal with the weight of evidence. We deal with corroborating evidence and the uncertainty of everyday life. And so rarely, in, in, I mean, certainly we can talk about certain historical facts being established beyond, uh, beyond any kind of question. But the kinds of, of matters that occupy our attention are matters of interpretation, and uh, the, they, they tend to be the kinds of things that, that evidence points in a particular direction. It, it creates a tolerance for ambiguity, and that's precisely one of the things that we're lacking in contemporary uh, political and social life at this point. People want concrete black and white answers, build a wall, uh, make the Mexicans pay for it. Um, this is the kind of thing that, that appeals to a need for certainty and a lack of exercising the muscle that can withstand ambiguity, and that's what historical thinking is all about, creating the muscle to deal with ambiguity.
Uh, let's go. Let's go a slightly different direction. Uh, as many of my, if some of my students are listening to this, both past and present, they'll know that when you look at my door at Messiah College, you'll find one of your quotes. It's a quote from I think the introduction. I'm not completely sure of your book, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts. And I just want to take the time to read it uh, here and then to sort of get your response. Uh, you say, for the narcissist sees the world, both the past and the present, in his own image. Mature historical understanding teaches us to do the opposite, to go beyond, beyond our own image, to go beyond our brief life, and to go beyond the fleeting moment in human history into which we have been born. History educates, leads outward, quote-unquote, in the Latin, in the deepest sense, of the subjects in the secular curriculum, it is the best at teaching those virtues once reserved for theology, humility in the face of our limited ability to know, and awe in the face of the expanse of history. Again, this is such a powerful quote, especially someone who has been interested in and writes a little bit about the role that religious faith may or may not play uh, in historical interpretation. So could you elaborate? This is a question I've always wanted to ask you. Could you elaborate a bit more about how thinking historically is something akin to doing theology? Still there? Yeah, no, I, I, I saw your question in, in, in writing, but then when you enunciated it with such gravity that I, I feel awestruck by oh, it. No. <laughs> my understanding, um, flawed and fallen as it is of, of true religious faith is that it cultivates and it should cultivate a sense of humility, a sense of the imperfection of the human species. And it should soften us in the face of uh, unremitting judgment. And one of the things that historical thinking does when it's successful, that I think is similar to the kinds, to the to the sense of brotherhood and humility that religious thinking can cultivate at its best is to, is to, there's a, there is a, a phrase in the sayings of the fathers, pirkei avot in the Hebrew, judge a man on the scales of merit and not on the scales of demerit. Um, and it's the recognition that ultimately, um, we we may in fact stand one day um, in the gaze of divine judgment, and what any of us would want at that moment is to be judged with mercy. Now, what you tend to see with people who are uncultivated in historical thinking is a kind of finger wagging toward the past, and the the, the notion that somehow we are superior, we are better people, we are more moral. We are more, our intellects are more refined. And if by some kind of H.G. Wells time machine, we were transported back into the past, we, of course, would not have acted like the dunces we are judging right now. <laughs> and I think that, that, that sustained study of history um, creates a sense of humility. Uh, first of all, it's impossible to know how we would have how we would have uh, behaved. 
And what it does is the more we study a particular time period, the more our understanding grows in the kinds of ways of thinking and logics that are not our own. And that itself is a mind-expanding activity. Mm. It gets us out of our own narcissism. It's the kind of thing that, if you will, um, that travel, that not as a tourist, not looking through the, the window of a bus, but extended time anthropologically living in another nation with a different set of beliefs also cultivates. I'll give you a, a, an example from my own life. I was Please, a, yeah. a, a Fulbright fellow in India for four months. And I have to tell you, now, to be in a Hindu country and to be raised with the Judeo-Christian imperative against icons and idols, to be thrust into a Hindu country where you go along a, 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 a street full of shops and you see idol makers, the, the first thing that I, the, 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 I was flooded with essentially all of the kinds of thoughts and conceptions that I grew up with that, that one thinks about when uh, growing up in the West toward, uh, uh, toward Hinduism, toward India. And I realized at a certain point that my judgments were so thick and so sticky that it was impossible to even understand even one keyhole of the reality of Hinduism because it was filtered through all of the suppositions that I had coming into the situation. Similarly, um, that's what happens in an uncultivated view of the past. We're not looking at the past. What we're doing is we're engaging in an act of judgment rather than an act of understanding. So I think that, that, that at their best, Historical thinking and theological thinking bring one to a point of fear and trembling, bring one to a point of one's own smallness in the face of the vastness of what there is to know. Yeah, if I could just ask a quick follow-up on that, Sam. Um, Do you see this? You've spent a lot of times in classrooms. You've spent a lot of time studying uh, students and teaching and learning. Uh, do you, you know, you don't have to give me a specific example, but do you see evidence of these, you know, the kids who are taught historical thinking well, uh, developing that sort of sense of virtue? I mean, is there any way to assess that? You know, John, we live in a culture where there is a tendency to indict those who do not think as we do. That kind of tendency is rife in, in the kind of, of political and social environment in which we dwell at this moment. The inability to understand someone who might hold a different position from the one that we cherish. And that is a very, very dangerous stance to take. And the kinds of lesson plans that we develop are ones about open historical questions. So one of, one of our most downloaded lesson plans is a set of activities in which we try to place Abraham Lincoln and his views on race in the, in the, in the kind of zeitgeist of the 1840s and 50s. Right. When students initially look at Lincoln's words, they are so quick, so quick to say, oh my goodness, this is Abraham Lincoln. This is not what we were taught in elementary school. This is not the biography that I read when I was a fourth grader. And they think that they understand these words. 
And what we see at the end of the sustained being bathed in these kinds of ambiguities is that we cultivate a tolerance for another view. We cultivate a, a suspicion of one's quick leap to judgment. Um, how to assess this? Uh, we, I can refer you to a piece by my, my colleague, Abby Reisman, uh, that looked very carefully at the discourse that went on in high school history classrooms where students had been using this approach for a period of seven and eight months. And you start to see changes in the way that students talk from a kind of position of, of uh, unalloyed certainty to one's own ability to reflect on one's suppositions and whether one is unduly imposing those on people from the past. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, you know, the reason I sort of pushed you a little on that is, you know, when I talk about these things, you know, with teachers and so forth, people are always asking me, you know, well, how does, you know, how, how to prove to me that studying history is going to somehow change the way people see the world. And so, so it's Abby Reisman. Uh, I'm going to have to go find that article and look at it. We'll try it. I'll probably, I'll put it on the blog too, for all of the listeners out there who want to access that. It appeared in Teachers College Record last year, and it was a, a very exacting analysis of the ways and the changes in students' patterns of talk around the past. Great. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about reading. Uh, you have written a book about uh, historical reading. I know you spent a lot of time thinking and writing about how to read like a historian. Um, and maybe maybe you've already answered this in the previous questions, but how is the process of reading like a historian different than, say, the approach to reading that uh, our kids are getting in school today? The first thing that we do when we read historically is we obey the imperatives of two dimensions, the dimensions of time and place. So the notion that words are free-floating, the kinds of misconceptions of new criticism, which actually, unfortunately, one can find in some of the, some of the, uh, the, the materials that are being used now for the Common Core. You can go on YouTube and watch David Coleman doing a completely ahistorical read of the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. Um, what historical reading does is it, it situates words in the time and place in which they're spoken. Um, it's absolutely crucial to, in, on, in any historical event, to place words within a historical context. So to, to, to go back to the example of Abraham Lincoln, to know that he is speaking to a group of freed black men in the, in the, in the White House about the possibility of establishing a colony for freed blacks in Central America is absolutely crucial to understanding and uh, what Lincoln might have meant when he said, we need men who are capable of thinking as white men. And he, is he really talking about skin color there or is he right. talking about the experience of being free? When these words are, are taken out of their context, Lincoln is immediately susceptible to all kinds of charges of the basest racism. But if you think about those words, and if you can find his interlocutors using the same phrase, then immediately our perception of Lincoln has to soften. And so what historical reading does is it says, there's no, words do not float freely apart from 
particular locales and particular time periods in which they were spoken. Um, these are not necessarily the ways of reading of a sociologist. They're not the ways of reading of, a, of someone in comparative literature. Um, to give you another example, I, I, one of the things that was most shocking when I, I uh, spoke to a group of Carnegie teaching fellows years ago um, was I, I gave a document to, to a professor of comparative literature. Um, it was a, a task that I've used oh, so many times. I know the documents by heart. They are the, uh, the, the testimony given by both British soldiers as well as Minutemen in the aftermath of the, of the conflict at Lexington on April That's 19th. That's right. I, I, I've, I've used your stuff on that many times, Sam, but go ahead. Yeah. The, 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 a professor of comparative literature uh, looked at a document and started reading the document from the, from the top. And we had a, 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 a very keen attention to word choice and to the particular punctuation of the document and the nature of the language. And a group of historians were sitting there and watching it because the, the, the professor um, simply approached the document with a set of assumptions that were profoundly different from every historian in the room. Every historian would immediately have gone down to the bottom to look at who wrote this document when was it written? What was the relationship between when the testimony was given and the actual date of the conflagration on Lexington Green? These kinds of things, which his, these historians who, te who taught undergraduates thought are simply features of any intelligent person's repertoire, were not present in that reading. So historical thinking is not something that we naturally come by. It's not something that develops spontaneously. It is something that is the result of a particular way of thinking and reading that adds to our repertoire as human beings. It's not the only way of reading. It's not the best way of reading, but it expands our repertoire and makes us richer and more thoughtful readers. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I have an ongoing debate with a philosopher friend of mine uh, who, who we argue, you know, when we read a document, you know, he wants to argue, is, you know, is the argument of the document right it doesn't matter who said it it doesn't matter when it was written is the argument correct right it's a much different way of thinking as opposed to the more contextual way of thinking uh historically uh so yeah fascinating so so when i i can give you i can give you an example of our current work john which yeah. is, which that kind of thinking is extremely dangerous so our current work um is expanded into something that we're calling civic reasoning and we're investigating that by looking at people's ability to think about the information they encounter online. Right. Now, if you only look at the nature of the words on the internet and look at the nature of the argument, and the argument is built upon particular facts and particular claims, not to know where those claims come from, not to know as, as, uh, as the famous words of the movie Jerry Maguire, follow the money, not yes. to know who paid for this website, is to essentially make oneself vulnerable to every seller of s digital snake oil there is on the internet. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, my, my philosopher friend would say, you know, he sees an op-ed and he says, is the argument that the, the person's making a valid one? And I'm saying, no, you have to understand where this op-ed appears, who the author is. Uh, you know, so again, I'm obviously with you 100% on this one, uh, Sam. You know, again, this, that's a very, if, if 
there is an argument that's based on, let's take a political figure, on something that Hillary Clinton said. Right. And there's a quotation there. Even if the words are correct, um, a historian wants to know, what did she say before? What did she say after? What is the context for this particular quote? So the notion that words are freestanding and can be effortly lifted from a particular context in which they're said is something that the historian is extremely suspicious of. Right. You just perfectly described my political behavior on Facebook to a T, because that's exactly what I do. Anytime I see my friends posting articles saying somebody said this, somebody said that, that's always my first approach. So yeah, absolutely. I think I think in light of the previous question, I think we could say, Sam, keep preaching it, right? <laughs> but go ahead, Drew, you have a question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you did bring up the Common Core, and that's something I've thought about a lot and actually something I've written about. So I just wanted to ask you what you thought about the Common Core as a way of teaching history. It's, it's a little bit like asking, um, how far is Detroit? <laughs> it, it's a, it's, it's a, how far is Detroit is a ludicrous question. It's always how far is Detroit from Ann Arbor? How far is Detroit from Milwaukee? And so the question with the common core is not what do I think of it, but what is, what is its alternative? Now, if its alternative is rote textbook instruction, the kind of instruction that too many uh, young people are still suffering from, of read the chapter and answer the questions in the book, then the Common Core is obviously an improvement. Practically anything would be an improvement. Um, the Common Core is, 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 it really depends on what teachers do with it. If it's just another, uh, another reform that is placed on the heads of, of overworked school teachers without adequate professional development, without in many ways, again, people, as, as, as both of you well know, um, many people who are ending, end up as social studies teachers are people with uh, K-8 or uh, K-8 generalist credentials. Um, they might have been child development majors. And so the kinds of things that we're talking about, historical thinking, might not be part of the repertoire. So to, to, to have the common core as an educational reform without the due diligence of professional development that's needed for teachers themselves to undergo an intellectual uh, transformation in how they think about historical information will mean that it'll be one more reform to add to the very crowded graveyard of educational reforms. Excellent. And speaking of speaking of that um, K through twelve, K through eight social studies who who lack you know certain historical skills and knowledge, uh, one of the favorite my favorite lectures I've heard you give was back in two thousand nine. I hope you remember this. <laughs> you gave a lecture at the Organization of American Historians in which you were quite critical, I think it's fair to say, uh, of the way that the Teaching American History program was implemented. Now, for those of you who are listening and don't know what that is, this was a multi-million dollar federal project to inject massive amounts of cash into school districts. I hope I'm being fair here, uh, to get them to... Um, offer sort of continuing education and teacher content uh, in these schools. Uh, uh, Full disclosure here, uh, I was involved in a lot of these Teaching American History grants, uh, working for the Gilder Lehrman Institute. Um, 
you know, so so for me, it was a boon. <laughs> and in some ways, for a lot of historians who were involved, it was a very, uh, it was, it, you know, it was an opportunity to really um, uh, get into classrooms uh, and to teach uh, content. Uh, you have been critical of it, uh, and you have been critical of the way that it was perhaps um, administrated. Um, and in light of that, and in light of so many teachers, American history teachers I know, who are sort of longing for the days in which this program is going to come back and return, uh, tell us, Sam, what it, what was wrong, or what were, what was some of your criticism uh, with the Teaching American History program? The Teaching American History program was probably uh, the, one of the biggest the, the biggest tragedy that that the historical profession has witnessed in in modern history. Wow. Um, it uh, over a billion dollars was spent on the Teaching American History program, and every single external evaluation was consistent in showing that there was no demonstrable effect. No demonstrable relationship between the kinds of activities that were done with teachers and any kind of measure of student understanding. There were three major evaluations of TAH by external evaluators. We're not talking about Lake Wobegon uh, self-reports that were done by the various programs. We're talking about external evaluations that were funded by the Department of Education. There was one done in 2003 by SRI, Stanford Research Associates. There was one done in 2005 by Berkeley Policy Associates. And there was one done in 2009 by a collaboration between Berkeley Policy Associates and SRI. And the, the results were absolutely consistent. That when when the claims were actually probed about changes in students' understanding on the basis of over $1 billion. Mm -hmm. There was absolutely no evidence that there had been any changes. Um, the bitter irony there, uh, uh, Carrie Wentz, uh, uh, who is a historian, I think, I'm not sure if he's at Texas A&M or... Uh, he was a long time, uh, 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 he's a professor of history, and he, he, the most positive thing that he could say in, uh, uh, about, about TAH at the end was that the impact on student learning is not clearly documented. <laughs> now, after a billion dollars, think of all the homeless people who could have been fed and, and sheltered with a billion dollars. Think about the incredible need. What uh, his, his conclusion on where it did have an effect, and here I quote, is it had a significant effect on historians and history departments. Now, isn't it a bitter irony that a program that was conceived to address the, the loss of civic memory turned out to benefit those who needed at least professional historians? Tell me this, Sam. You have a billion dollars. I, I want to, I, John. I want to continue. Go ahead. Go ahead. Tah was conceived in sin. Tah wow. Tah was foisted on the American public on by false pretenses. Why? How is it that one day in two thousand uh, in, in in two thousand and one before the before nine uh, eleven that that Senator Byrd gets up and talks about the the 
the crumbling of historical memory. How is it that you wake up one day and you say, we are losing our memory? Were we not losing our memory in 1976 when the New York Times gave a survey? Were we not losing our memory in 1987 when the first National Assessment of Educational Progress went on? Were we not losing our national memory in 1942 when Bernard Bailyn designed the the, when, not when Bert, when Alan Nevins designed the, the study for the New York Times, mm-hmm. were we not losing our historical memory in 1980 when, when uh, uh, Jay Carlton Bell did the first kind of study? No. What happened? How is it that this whole thing happened in the congressional record? This thing was cooked up by an organization called the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. And they did, they cooked up a survey of 556 college seniors at leading colleges and universities on questions like, which was the decisive battle of the American Revolution, the Battle of Saratoga, the Battle of Fort Ticonderoga, Valley Forge, or Yorktown? Right. Of course, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> it's coming from upstate New York. I know that it was the Battle of Saratoga, but... It wasn't well, Valley Forge? There wasn't a battle there, Sam? <laughs> there you go. Uh, or, or what court case. I want you to go and on, on, on go to your colleagues at Messiah College and ask them what John Marshall is most famous for and ask them to tell us the tenets of Marbury versus Madison. So, you know, it's, 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 these are the kinds of questions that were asked. And, and now, of course, students have never been able to answer these kinds of questions. And mixed, but mixed into the, this is where it becomes, it becomes really sleazy. Mixed into the brew were questions about whether but, but Beavis and Butthead was an animated uh, video or a who knows what. Wow. So, so it was the kind of thing that, that journalists love. College students know who Beavis and Butthead is, but they don't know what uh, uh, Nathan Hale said before he was executed. <laughs> Um, and so this was all, and now what's the interesting thing about it? The, the, the author of this report, uh, the, the lead author on the report was a woman named Nan, Ann Neal. Uh, it turns out that she was married to a congressman from Wisconsin, uh, named Tom Petrie. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who brought Slade Gordon and Senator Lieberman over to this press conference where they reported these findings. Now, this is this is the kind of thing that that these this is uh, uh, this was an organization that was actually funded by founded by Lynn Cheney. So we already know the political persuasion of this group. We already know if you if you looked at Jane Meyer's new book on billionaires and education, we know the way that the Olin Foundation financed a lot of these efforts. So again, it's the historical question: How did how did Senator Byrd wake up one day to a crisis? That's an interesting historical question, right. and it's nowhere in the story of TAH. Now, what is now? Here's the big irony, John. The, what does th- this was a survey that was done with 534 college students, and in the original congressional report, what Senator Byrd rails against is the lax requirements for studying history in colleges and universities like Princeton and Swarthmore and Kenyon. Mm-hmm. Now, how is it if this is what exercised him that we that that the TAH program wasn't about requiring colleges to offer American history? Why what did it again become a problem of, of high school and middle school teachers? Yeah. How did that bait and switch go on? These are historical questions. Fascinating. I can, I can give you my hypothesis. Yeah. 
Congress has very little control over what you teach at Messiah College. Right. It, 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 it is the, the glorious past that, that Senator Byrd, it wasn't so glorious when he, when he joined the KKK, but the <laughs> glorious past of Senator Byrd that he wanted wasn't going to go over too well with the, with the university faculty in the history department at Columbia. Right. But start to dangle million dollars in front of cash-starved school districts, and you're going to find a lot of hungry takers. Yeah. Yeah. You mean it, at, referring to the sort of partnership, right, between high schools and colleges? That was part of the TAH. Now, who who benefited the most from TAH? Yep. Was it the kids who were supposed to be the primary recipients of it? We do not engage in teacher professional development, John, to make teachers happy. In the same way, when nurses and doctors engage in professional development, it's not to make them happy. It's to to create longer, better, healthier lives for medical patients. We engage in teacher professional development to make them more effective with their charges. Is there evidence that a billion dollars led to that? There are stories, there are self-reports. We all want to feel guilt, we all want to feel good about our administrations. But do we have the kind of evidence across 10 years? Think about it. Approximately 10% of all of the TAH money was spent on evaluation. What new measure, what community knowledge, what new techniques, what new ways of collaborating, what new assessments did a billion dollars that was earmarked for American history, for teaching American history in K-12 settings, what was wrought, what was left that we can point to today? And I challenge you to tell me something solid that you would point to. Yeah, yeah. Let's just, let me go back to the question I asked before. You have a billion dollars uh, to promote history education. We only have a little bit of time left here, but this is great. You know, how do you use it? Well, any of us who's worked in K-12 education knows that unfortunately, assessment in a K-12 setting leads instruction. So one of the biggest flaws of TAH was that the aims of the project were misaligned with the tools used to assess it. Mm. Many, many projects promoted historical thinking, the use of primary source documents, uh, the notion of multiple perspectives, the notion of close reading. And yet, when both teachers and students were evaluated on the effects, they were given questions like, Did J was Jamestown founded in 1600 or 1608? Right. Do we care? Does it really make a difference? I'm, that's an actual item that one of the multiple choice items yeah. that that I that I looked at in a in a uh, a project that touted glorious results that it had used uh, a multiple choice test. And one of the questions was uh, was Jamestown established between five hundred and between fifteen hundred and sixteen hundred, or sixteen oh one and seventeen hundred? Well, I mean, there's a really thin line there. What would happen if a kid thought it was Jamestown was established in sixteen hundred? Is that really right. what we want right. to spend a million dollar grant in central Pennsylvania uh, 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 with our teachers on? If that's the case, and I made that argument when I gave that OAH talk, if that's really the case 
then let's pay Stanley Kaplan or Princeton Review. Uh, 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 they, they'll, get, they'll get a couple multiple choice items much cheaper than a billion dollars. What was the response to your, le- to your lecture at OAH? Well, it's, it was the feedback similar to, to the, the, the seven-year-old boy who watches a, the gallantry of an incredible parade where the monarch um, is completely buck naked. Yeah. And the seven-year-old says, the emperor is wearing no clothes. You don't indict the emperor, you indict the messenger. So again, but, but John, ultimately, what sank TAH was, it didn't have the receipts. It, the, the, the external evaluations, rather than the kind of coddled, internal, uh, 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 wink, handshake evaluations that were done internally, the external evaluations were entirely consistent. There are three of them. They almost speak in a completely uniform voice. Ultimately, what sunk TAH was its inability to show the relationship between the kinds of activities that were done with teachers and any demonstrable change in student understanding in whatever guise that might have assumed. Now, you you mentioned a book. You're working on a book on this topic? Um, I'm working on a book uh, called... Um, stuck in the past, why learn history when it's already on your iPhone? Wonderful. And when is when can we expect that? Um, <laughs> uh, we 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 should have expected its first the first draft of the book to be delivered to the publisher and on August first. But uh, yeah. at this at this state, it's going to take a little bit longer. But I'm working on it. Right. I slogged through it this morning, and I'll probably spend a little bit more time this afternoon. So uh, it's uh, it's about half done, and I'm plugging along. Well, Sam, our time is up. Thank you so much. What a rich conversation. How do I how do I get like a visiting something at the Stanford Education Group so I can so I can hang out with all your people and 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 learn more about thinking historically? I'm only half kidding about that, by the way. <laughs> We'd love to have you anytime you want to we come can, out. We can we'll, talk. We can talk. We'll get, yeah. you, we'll get you a desk um, and an introduction. I, what, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us uh, and, and for sharing your very candid views on these things and, and, and helping us to think more deeply about these questions of historical thinking. Thank you, Sam. It's my pleasure. Wow, what an interview, Drew. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to be honest. I didn't expect it to go that way at all, but I'm really glad it did. I, it's really, really great to hear someone so impassioned about the things that I think we're passionate about and that really drive our work. We were talking We were talking after we went so-called off the air with Sam, and, you know, you know, you just see that that passion and talking about how, you know, it's so difficult to get people to think historically, especially in terms of the the political culture that we're in today. Absolutely. And I mean, just looking at the kinds of claims that are being made publicly, this goes back to what uh, Yoni Applebaum was saying in our previous episode about daring to be a historian in public. You know, I think, uh, well, I'm just, 
I'm, I'm coming down from chills a little bit, I think. <laughs> More chills. I, drew... I know. I, I keep getting these adrenaline rushes. Well, let's, let's I guess uh, we, we've gotten our charge, Drew. Let's, uh, I guess we need to now go out there and keep the faith and spread the word, right? Absolutely. And everyone here listening, you should be spreading the word, too, about this podcast and about the kinds of things that, uh, that we historians hold dearly. Yeah, please. If you are a teacher uh, and you have friends who are teachers, go out, tell them about this podcast, retweet it, Facebook it. Sam Weinberg is the guru of history education. And I'm guessing most of you out there know this, but the stuff he is saying is revolutionary. And it's something that we really need to consider in this sort of culture that we live in today. So I guess that's a wrap, Drew. Episode four is in the books. Absolutely, and I just have to wish you well as you continue your research there in the the lavish accommodations of George Washington's Mount Vernon. (laughs) I will, I will. I'm having a great time uh, just digging into some uh, 18th century documents this week. It's been great. Well, that's our podcast for this week. And until next time, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. This podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Once again, thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Sam Weinberg. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host is John Fia.